that's so sweet. Who, anybody grow up watching Little House on the Prairie? Oh, man, almost the whole first service did. Oh, it's so good. If you've never watched that, our family, in a strange way, we've kind of gotten into that show. We bought the first two seasons because we would go up hunting, and there's almost no channels up there except every once in a while, Little House on the Prairie would come on. And my kids, like, my kids like modern shows, like they're into Nickelodeon and Disney and all that stuff. And um, so they like all the cool modern stuff, but they've totally gotten into that. They've fallen in love with that show, so we watch it quite a bit. Good stuff. So if you don't know, that's Charles Ingalls and Mary and the girls and all kinds of different things. And they have all those sweetheart moments and hugs and smiles and zoom in on the cute faces and stuff like that. But in that particular episode, uh, they've gotten into a bit of a jam. So they, they have this family model that they, they buy things cash on the barrel. So no debt, no credit, things like that. But Charles had gotten a side job that had kind of trickled down from a big company in the big city uh, down to their small little town where they were doing one, of the, uh, one part of that project in anticipation of a big payday at the end of the summer. But in the midst of it, the big company went bankrupt, and so everyone, even though they did all the work, nobody got paid. And in the meantime, while they were anticipating the big payday, they were running up a debt at the local store, just buying different things that they normally wouldn't buy, but they were buying them because they knew they'd have the money, but then they didn't have the money. So now they're in this situation, and it feels good because the family's like, oh, man, Dad, we'll, we'll all chip in, and you got this nice like little house on the prairie classic moment. But they're only in the situation because Charles Ingalls allowed the family to drift from their original rule of cash on the barrel only. But they, by the end of the episode, a couple months in, they get out of the debt but not until every single one of them had reoriented their life and priorities around the decision that had been made. The one daughter had to stop. Now, parents, you all dread that conversation. You're like, Dad, I'm going to quit school and go to work. You don't anticipate your 12-year-old daughter doing that, but it's a conversation you all dread, right? She's going to quit school and go to work for a while. The younger sister has to help with homework and other things, double up the chores. The the baby girl wants to uh, milk the cows. The mom and one of the daughters plowed the field that season. So everybody's life was turned upside down in order to recover from the one decision. Months of difficulty traced back to the one decision that backfired. Anybody ever been there? Now, this feels like it's the beginning of an extension of our money series that we finished last week, right? This would have been a great clip, and i get you all guys all buttered up with a nice TV show and then come hammer you about debt. But that's not today. We're not talking about money. That finished last week. Certainly nice when our series parallel each other a little bit. But today is kind of a jump back into a series that we started back in early January called Your Word. And it began out of a challenge as a church to begin reading through the Bible, a 100-day reading challenge, to go cover to cover, not every single verse, but 100 key passages, Old Testament, New Testament, diving back in to the one true foundation that we should be standing on. Because one thing that we noticed through the year of 2020 is that people were reaching anywhere and everywhere for something to listen to, something to stand on, something to lean on, something to build on, something to turn our emotions over to, people going anywhere and everywhere except for the one place that deserves our trust, the one place that deserves to be the foundation, that deserves to have our emotions turned over to it, and that's the Word of God. And so we're diving into these passages and discovering once again who God is how he loves his people, how he interacts with his people, how he corrects and provides for his people. It's the story of God and ultimately points to Jesus in the New Testament and we see all those things fulfilled and we see the foundation of the church laid there. And if nothing else, if nothing else, you get a chance to see for yourself some of the things that you've heard about and been taught about 
things that maybe you forgot about, passages that maybe make sense more when you see them for yourself. So that's, that's kind of been the challenge, and we did a couple weeks to kick it off in January, took a break for the Money Talk series. Now we're back for this week, and, and we'll revisit it again in a few weeks. But today, kind of an important reminder that comes out of our reading from this past week, and it starts with uh, something that we'll hit uh, in our reading in a few weeks. It's, it's from Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that appears to be right, seems like the right thing, seems like the right thing in the short term, but in the end, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And we get caught in that cycle sometimes where we have a decision to make, there's a fork in the road, and we find a, an option that seems right. It makes sense based on what we understand, but then sometimes there's an option that we're not sure it's right, and so we look at someone else and, okay, this option worked out for them, so maybe this is right for me as well. But sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we know that in the long term it's not right, but it seems right in the short term. I, I want to have that. I want to experience that. I want to pursue that. I want to go there. I want to I be a part of that. And when we're in that mode where we, we see the benefits for ourselves in the short term, even if it's a sacrifice in the long term, all the warnings in the world, words from parents or grandparents, friends, mentors, coaches, or teachers in our lives, all the wisdom, all the warnings in the world mean nothing when we're in that mode, right? We get our heart set on it, we get our mind set on that one particular direction, and nothing is going to change it. Don't eat too much of the Halloween candy tonight. You know what it does to you. How many of you have said that? It doesn't matter how many times you say that. It doesn't matter who says it. Your kids still plow through that chocolate on the night of Halloween, right? It doesn't really matter. Are you sure that this is the boy you're going to marry? Are you sure this is the girl you want to commit the rest of your life to? That house, man, that house is beautiful, but it seems like that house is a little bit outside of your means. Maybe that house is going to stretch you more than you want it to. It's a beautiful car, but are you sure that's the car that you want to commit to? That's going to be an expensive monthly payment every single month for the next five years. Are you sure? Are you sure that's the person that you want to follow, right? I know they've got really good YouTube videos. They speak well. Their books are great. Are you sure that's the person that you want to lean into and put weight into and buy into the thing? Are you sure? When we're in that mode and we're seeing some short-term things that seem right for us, it doesn't matter what anybody says, it's not going to knock us off our path. And ultimately, whether, whether we get to what we want or not, whether it's worth it in the short term or not, what we end up doing is paying the price in the long term. We pay with our quality of work. We pay with debt. We pay with a stomach ache. We pay with a broken home. We pray. We pay with a broken heart. And sometimes it's not just you. If you find yourself in a family situation, if you find yourself uh, working towards a future family or you're part of a department at work, you, f- you end up like Charles Ingalls where a decision that you made doesn't just affect you and your life and your priorities. All of a sudden, everyone else has to reorient their lives and their work and their priorities in order to battle back together from that one decision. When in reality, the entire time, there was a better way. There was a better path. There was a better leader to follow. Now, this issue, if you've been reading along with us, this issue comes up quite a bit in Scripture, and we're going to look at one today. Uh, it actually comes from day 32, which I think was maybe Tuesday in our Essential 100 reading this week from First Samuel, uh, Samuel 8, and we'll get there, but first... I need to skip ahead later into the Old Testament to kind of set the stage for what 1 Samuel 8 is all about. Um, So we need to go to the end of Jeremiah, 
and the start of lamentations because there's something going on there that's very significant in the history of God's people, Israel. So as we finish up the end of the book of Jeremiah, Jerusalem has fallen again. And God's people are taken into exile again. This is something that happens multiple times to the Old Testament. And it's, a, it's the result of sin. It's the result of disobedience on the part of the entire nation. But really, it's the result of the foolishness of a series of kings as it works towards the end here. And, and bigger than Jerusalem falling, bigger than the exile, because that had happened before. God would bring them back, hear their repentance, hear their cries for help, restore the nation and start kind of over again, restore some king and get that lineage of David going again. But in this situation, as Jeremiah's book finishes up, the dynasty of King David and the glory of that nation are done. It's over. They won't come back from this. And so we go to Lamentations chapter 1, and we see the gravity of the devastation that was being experienced on the part of not just the city, not just the people, but of God's people and who they had been for centuries. Lamentations 1.1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations, she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Jump down to verse 5. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. Verse 9, her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. How did things get so bad? How did it come to this? The, this glorious nation of people, God's people, God's chosen people to be his representatives and show him to the world, God's chosen people, this heritage of faith and deliverance and miracles, as is so often the case. These events of Lamentations 1, and as are described at the end of Jeremiah, these events can be traced back to one very big decision, and generations following paid for it. So we look back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we, we see the turning point that eventually led to the tragedy of Lamentations. So uh, as we jump into 1 Samuel 8, there's, there's kind of a leadership change going on here. And going back to Moses, you had Moses led them out of Egypt, over the Red Sea, into the wilderness. Moses stepped aside. Joshua took over. Then you get into Judges and people like uh, Samson and Gideon and Deborah and others who led during that time. And then you had prophets and, and priests, people like Eli and Samuel, who we're going to talk about in a second. All of them raised up by God for a very specific time and a very specific purpose. Not to be in charge. Not to claim their own authority. They were raised up to represent and speak for God and his authority to the people to carry out his mission in that time. And that was God's long-term plan for leadership, where God reigns, God is the king, he has the authority, and he simply uses people as his vessels and his mouthpiece in that time, in that generation, for that specific purpose. So that's God's long-term leadership plan. But what we find in 1 Samuel 8 is people start thinking a little bit more short-term. 
So 1 Samuel 8, we'll start in verse 1. It says, when Samuel grew old, and Samuel was one of those prophets that God had raised up to lead and guide and judge the people. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Verse 3. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel And they said to him, you're old. Samuel, you've been great. You have led well. You have guided us well. But you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. So now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, there's a few issues here with these particular verses. First one is this. It's Samuel anointing his sons as his leadership replacements. That's not how this works. That's not how this ever worked with God's long-term plan. Because go back to Moses. God raised up Moses, used him to lead the people, spoke through him, led through him. And then it was time for Moses to step aside. And what God does, he didn't grab Moses' son. It wasn't passed down generation to generation. He then raised up Joshua to lead the people after Moses. Joshua did his thing, got them over the Jordan, conquered the nations, gave peace to the people. And then it was time for Joshua to step aside. It didn't go to Joshua's kids, didn't go to his grandson or his nephew or his closest heir. Joshua stepped aside and then God began to raise up other leaders, the judges. As I said, Samson, Gideon, Deborah, others from that that book of Judges. It didn't get passed to their sons either. It was based on the need of the time. It was based on God's desire, God's timing, God's choice for leadership. And so for Samuel to say, man, I'm getting older. Let me pass this down to my sons. That's not how God did things. So this is an issue. Second issue spins off of that. The second issue with this passage is the concern of the elders about Samuel's sons. Now, on the surface, you think, okay, that's a concern. These sons have issues. They're shady. They don't make decisions the way Samuel is. They're not filled with the spirit in the way that Samuel is. But that really shouldn't be an issue because all they have to do is look one generation previous and see how God handled the very exact same situation. See, Samuel's mentor was a guy named Eli. Eli was in a similar situation as Samuel, and he had a couple sons, and he tried to pass his leadership to them, and they were shady. They did all kinds of crazy stuff, disgusting stuff, in the midst of their leadership. But here's the thing. They didn't have to worry about his sons. God took care of Eli, God took care of their sons, got them aside and raised up Samuel to replace them. So they didn't have, they weren't left with Eli's sons just because they were Eli's sons. God raised up a different leader for a new time and a new purpose and a new mission. And so there's no reason to be concerned about Samuel's sons. And so the elders making that a concern is an issue and it leads to the third issue. Because they start asking for a king. Now, this could be simply a title change. They had had leaders before. They had had people raised up to lead them and guide them, take them into battle before. So maybe this is just, hey, let's call the next guy a king. But here's the problem. They say, we want a king like all the other nations have. All the other nations. Let's think about all the other nations. All the other nations are the ones worshiping false gods. Those other nations, the ones who are enslaving their neighbors at every opportunity, are those the other nations we're trying to copy here? How about the ones that are sacrificing people, sacrificing children to their false gods? How how about the other nations who are engaging in every type of evil you can imagine going completely unchecked? How about these other nations that are living entirely at the whim of whatever pathetic king they have at the time? Those other nations, we want a king like those other nations, that is a huge 
issue. They've taken Samuel's issue of passing leadership to his sons, not how God does things. And the elders overreacting to that issue, knowing that God's taken care of it in the past, and then saying, we want a king, not a king like God might choose, not a, not a person that God might raise up. We want a king to lead us and be like those other nations, disgusting and pathetic as they were. What we find in this time with these people is similar to what we find in our lives on a regular basis, what we find is a complete misunderstanding of, a mixing up of, a perversion of the relationship and difference between human leadership and holy leadership. They had messed up the difference between human leadership and holy leadership. And here's the saddest part, the next couple of verses. 1 Samuel 8, 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, listen, listen to what those people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected. They're saying it's you. They're saying it's your sons. It is not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And as you read more over the next few weeks, you'll come to the Gospels where Jesus is standing before the people, ready to go to the cross, and they have an opportunity to either crown him king or cast him aside to the cross. And what do they say? They say, we have no king but Caesar. A similar rejection by a similar group of people, and it harkens back to this time where the people aren't rejecting Samuel. They're, reject they're rejecting God and his leadership. So they get what they want. But he here's what they can expect from human leadership, the type of leadership they've chosen to turn themselves over to. Samuel, uh, let's jump to verse 9. God says, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain, a tenth of your vintage, that was their wine, and give it to his officials and his attendants your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In summary, when you have the king you have chosen, when you turn yourself over to human leadership, Everyone will have to reorient themselves in the direction of that king, in the direction of that decision. Your sons and your daughters, your nation's economic priorities, your savings, your workforce, your crops, your livestock, the people you love, the things you love, the freedoms you've enjoyed, all of them sacrificed to this one decision. And like Charles Ingalls and his family, forever in debt to the choice of that one day. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. It didn't matter how much he warned them. It didn't matter how much he told them not to eat the candy or marry the wrong girl or buy the wrong car. It didn't matter because they saw the short-term value and they were willing to sacrifice 
the long term. But here was their ultimate choice. Forget the king stuff for a second. Because that could be king, you could call it president, you could call it prime minister, whatever it is. They weren't looking for a king, they were looking for a human. No, they said, we want a human over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a human to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them. Give them a human. God said, fine. You want human leadership? Here's human leadership. I've described it for you. Here's how it's going to affect you. Here's what the long term looks like. Take your short-term desires. It seems right, but it's going to lead to something bad. So concerned, so wrapped up, so distracted by the human side of leadership that they forgot what holy leadership does and what it means. Because God, show, it, uh, a few weeks ago, we hit uh, Joshua or Judges chapter 2 uh, in talking about some of that transition and the family tree implications. But down from where we worked a couple weeks ago, Judges 2.16, God talks about what he does with his holy leadership and his interaction with the human vessels that he raises up. Judges 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges, or also called leaders, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge, whenever the Lord raised up a leader, he was with the leader and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. Under holy leadership, God took care of them He provided protection, promises made and kept, leadership and direction. He blessed their work and left them with plenty of room to rest and celebrate life. They didn't have to worry about who was leading. They didn't have to worry about which individual was raised up for that time, whether it was them or worry about their sons or worry about the next generation or who was attacking or what situation are we facing because they knew that under holy leadership, God was going to step in. He would raise up someone to lead and he would bless that person and deliver the people through them. That's what holy leadership looked like and they forgot. But here's the great thing about God. Gave him another chance. He said, fine, I'm gonna give you your short-term desires. I'm gonna give you a human king to lead you. But even in the midst of that, there's still a chance to thrive under that leadership. Uh, a few pages over from where we were, go to 1 Samuel 12. And listen to how Samuel's kind of wrapping up the transition. They've chosen their king. It's, it's King Saul, tallest guy, strongest guy, best-looking guy in the country. They chose him to be their king. So 1 Samuel 12, 13, he says, Now here's the king you've chosen, the one that you've asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. He's given you what you believe is right. He says, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. Things will work out fine. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you do rebel against his commands, and then his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Jump to verse 20. Samuel says, don't be afraid. You've done all this evil. You've chosen incorrectly. You've chosen human leadership. But if you do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, do not turn away after useless idols. They will do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. 
As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. But if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. A foreshadowing of what we would see at the end of Jeremiah into the book of Lamentations. And God says, whatever human leadership looks like in your life, right? You've, you've chosen that as a structure in your life. Whatever it looks like, whatever title they have, whatever context they lead in, whatever their style is, whatever their personality, whatever level of authority you've given them, you could be a, it could be a boss, it could be a parent, it could be a superintendent or a pastor or a CEO, it could be a head coach of your team. Whatever human leadership looks like, he says the outcome of that human leadership is completely dependent on how we respond to holy leadership. Whether you find yourself in a position of leadership or you find yourself in a position of submitting to or relying on human leadership, it's the same deal. How we respond to God's holy leadership sets us up to experience either the best or the worst in our lives in whatever season we find ourselves in. And that affects your life, the people you love, and those who come after you. If we'll lean on his leadership and what he promises us with his holy leadership, he raises us up and sets us up for success in our leadership. Your leadership as a husband, as a mom, as a captain of the team, as the team lead, as a supervisor, as a deacon. You, you've been, many of you have been already. Some of you, you will be raised up to positions of leadership and influence. And it says when God calls a leader, he is with the leader. When God raises up a husband, he is with the husband. When God raises up a mom, he's with the mom. When God calls a boss, he is with the boss. When God raises up a captain of a basketball team, he's with the captain of the basketball team. When God raises up a principal or a superintendent, he's with that leader because that's holy leadership. All the things he provided to the people of Israel throughout the entire time before they had a king, before they had a human to look at, before they had a good-looking, yoked-up dude to lead the charge into, into the battle, God was there with his holy leadership providing everything that was needed. And it's the same promise for us. Whether we're leading or following, it's all about how we respond to his holy leadership. Now, then the question becomes, how, how, do, how do we respond to his holy leadership? What is our response to him so that it trickles down into our leadership and our context? Well, it's the same as what Samuel told the people in their context. First thing he said was, in, in response to holy leadership, I want you to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And I throw this out every time because I still have a pet peeve about what I was taught in Sunday school about fear Fear in the Bible, when it talks about fearing the Lord, we always hear, oh, it's, it's a respect, it's a reverence for God. No, when it says fear the Lord, fear equals fear. It's okay to have, be a little bit afraid of God because what it means is you're humbling yourself at the knowledge of who he is and what he's capable of. It's knowledge that there is an all-powerful creator God and I ain't it. That should be humbling. That should bring a sense of fear into your heart. That should be a sobering thought as we throw around 
our ideas and our opinions and flippantly make decisions with our lives based on the short term, the things that seem right with no consideration for what it might lead to in the long term. Fear the Lord. Recognize who he is, but ultimately who you are in light of who he is. Fear the Lord. Second thing Samuel told them to do is serve the Lord and obey his commandments. Because if this God is all-powerful, if he is to be feared, if he is to be revered, then the question becomes, what might this God want from me? What might he be asking of me? What might be he commanding me to do? What wisdom has he provided for my current situation? Is there a clear-cut command that he's given me to guide me and guide my behavior in this moment? What's, what's the Holy Spirit speaking to me in this moment, asking me to do, leading me? What passions has he instilled in me? What, what are the passions that might lead to my kingdom purpose on this earth? How am I serving him with my time and my talents and my treasure? As I'm reading through the Bible, whether it's the Essential 100 or anything else, as I'm reading through the Bible and I'm hearing truth, what are the areas of my life that I can bring more in alignment with what he's revealed about himself and what he's revealed about a life that's lived for him? Because see, that, that proverb that we started with, there's a way that seems right. A lot of times we think we're heading in the right direction. We think we've got it nailed down. We think we know the decision to make, and yet we need to come back to what God says and make sure that we're not accidentally on a path to destruction because of something that seemed right. Fear the Lord. Recognize who he is, and then serve him and obey his commands. And then the third thing is follow the Lord. Samuel said, follow the Lord. And i got to apologize to the Gen Xers because you grew up with this silly thing. What would Jesus do? Right? You wore the bracelets. You thought it was really cool until you saw the crazy rapper on TV with a messed up life, and he was wearing one too, and you're like, oh, that's kind of dumb. Why would I wear it? Right? So, so you guys grew up with that, but what would Jesus do? It's a valid question. And as you get into the Gospels over the next few weeks, you're going to hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're going to see how Jesus lived. You're gonna, and so you start asking yourself, what did he say? Maybe I should say that. What did he do? Maybe that's what I should do. How did he lead as an example for my leadership? And conversely, how did he submit to his father as an example for areas that I need to submit? What was his take on love? What did he say about marriage? What did he say about purity? What did he say about the difference between truth and grace and the important balance of those two? What did he say about anger? What did he say about the power of your words? Follow the Lord. Walk in Jesus' footsteps. Follow his example. Be his disciple. And that's why we dive into things like the Essential 100. So you can see it for yourself and read it for yourself and absorb it and take what he did and follow it. Follow his footsteps. Fear the Lord. Serve him and obey his commands and follow in his footsteps. Follow the Lord. See, guys, we live in a world of human leadership in some context. Sometimes as leaders, sometimes as followers. Sometimes we're Charles Ingalls, right? And we're that old school dad, husband, we make the decisions and that's what goes. But sometimes we're the family members that have to kind of live with the decisions that are made. Whatever our context, whatever position we find ourselves in, our response to God's leadership will drastically impact how any of those scenarios unfold. 
There's one other thing that Samuel asked them to do before he gave them their king. He said, consider what great things this God has done for you. Consider what great things he's done for you. Why would he say that? I think Samuel knew the the pain that was coming. I think he knew the path that they were walking down. I think in his mind's eye, maybe God revealed to him, I think he knew that at some point something like the end of Jeremiah and Lamentations 1 was going to happen. And so he wanted to remind them, in the midst of all that, remember the things he's done for you because he'll do it again. He'll do it again in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your consequences, as you're screaming, S-O-S, right? Who is going to save me? Who is going to hear me? I've turned myself over to human leadership, and now I need some serious help. God, where are you? And he'll say, I'm still here. All the things I've done before, all the things I did for them, all the things I've done for you before, I will do them again because he is faithful and he is trustworthy. He is consistent and powerful and personal. He forever was and he forever will be. He is merciful and just. He's full of truth, and he's full of grace. He is perfect, and that is holy leadership. And that's what we need to turn ourselves over to. And it has to begin, all of this stuff is huge, but it has to begin with an understanding and a belief that we have to turn our hearts and lives over to him. That's where it has to begin. If you've never had a moment like that where, you, where you, believe, you recognize, I believe, I do believe, I believe that Jesus is God and that he came and he lived a perfect life and then he died for me to take care of the mess, to take care of the brokenness, to take care of the consequences of my short-term decisions without thinking about the long-term consequences. I've messed up my life. I've impacted my family. I've impacted my coworkers. I've impacted the people closest to me. Everyone is having to reorient their lives based on my mess, but I'm ready to turn that over and declare him king, surrender to holy leadership, and say, God, save me. Take my heart, take my life. Let me live that out. That's what it's all about. That's why we're going to celebrate baptism next week, because there's no bigger deal than someone whose heart has been changed and is ready to declare it to the world. He's my king. I'm about holy leadership. If you're struggling in the tension of making that decision and coming to a place of belief, please come find me. I'd love to talk with you. Shoot me an email. Call me. Tweet me. Facebook me. Instagram me. I'm not on Snapchat, but I'll get on it if that's how you communicate, right? Let's talk about what it means to follow, love, and live for Jesus. That's what it's all about. Let me pray for you, and we'll get out of here. God, thank you for, God, even in the mess that your people got themselves into. God, thank you for using their situations to teach us and challenge us and encourage us. And God, as we enter into our own life situations, God, places where we're leading, places where you've raised us up to do that, God, places where you've asked us to submit and live under others' leadership, God, we confess that in the end it comes back to you, how we respond to you, how we live for you. God, may we do that correctly and obediently. And then God bless everything else in the midst of it. Father, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great afternoon. Enjoy the big game. We'll see you next week.